Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Before we open our Bibles and look at the Psalms this morning, Psalm 124, I need to issue a retraction from my sermon last week. It pains me to have to do this, but I made a, a terrible blunder in explaining something in last week's sermon, and I really have to correct it on the record. Otherwise, I, I just cannot live with myself. I, I think it's a, a testament to the fact that I'm getting old, and uh, my my scissors aren't as sharp as they used to be. But if you recall, I was explaining to you how in the English Bible, the words Yahweh and Adonai are not translated into English, but instead the English word Lord is used for both. And to distinguish between them, they are uh, set differently in the type so that Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord, uh, is just spelled the way we would spell Lord, you know, big L, little O, little R, little D. But then Yahweh is small caps, I said, and then I said if it was in all caps, you'd have a third option, which is Elohim, and that is actually quite wrong. The Hebrew word Elohim, when it's translated into English, is translated using the English word God. So not Lord, but God. When you see God in the Hebrew, you're seeing Elohim. When you see Lord, capitalized or small case, you're seeing Yahweh. And when you see Lord, uh, lowercase, uh, in, in the ordinary way, you're seeing Adonai. So with that thought in mind, please open your Bibles and turn to Psalm 124. Hear the word of the Lord. A song of ascents of David. If it had not been for the Lord, who was on our side. Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord, who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Lord, we ask that our help would be in you, that as you illuminate and interpret this psalm by the power of your spirit, it would speak to us and guide and direct us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. On December 12th, in the year 1602, the Duke of Savoy rallied his army and decided to accomplish a great feat on behalf of his faith. He was going to conquer the, the capital of the Reformation, the city of Geneva. And in order to accomplish this, he decided to attack stealthily by night. He had his armies rush up to the walls of the city to set their ladders against the walls and to rush up by surprise and seize the city where Calvin had once preached and bring it back into the Roman Catholic fold. But as grace would have it, 
the defenders of the wall, although they were taken by surprise, nevertheless managed to beat off this famous attack, which was remembered in history as the Escalade, because they had attempted to put the, the, the ladders against the walls and, and climb up, which is called an Escalade in siege warfare. To celebrate this great unexpected victory, the people of Geneva got together and, of course, held a church service. Theodore Beza, who had been the student of Calvin, had taken over from Calvin after his death, was now a very old man in his 80s. And as the organizers of the celebration got together, Beza made a request. Fifty years earlier, he had taken the Psalms and and put them into verse so that Clement Marot could set them to music and form the Genevan Psalter that had been used in the church, he requested that they sing a particular psalm during that celebration that he had versified so many years before. It was Psalm 124, the one that we have just read. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. A psalm that summed up their sense of Gratitude at the deliverance that they had received from the Lord. When you think about the city of Geneva, it had this extraordinary impact on Europe, on world history, out of all proportion to its size. And that had to do with the people who had been gathered there during the Reformation. The French historian Jules Michelet wrote this description of Geneva. He said, in this peaceful place, in this dusky garden of God, bloomed blood-red roses under the hand of Calvin for the salvation and the freedom of the soul. If there be any need for martyrs in Europe, the need of a man to be burned or broken upon the wheel, this man is in Geneva, ready to go with the singing of psalms. When I first read those words of Michelet, I I got goosebumps reading it until the end because it sounded like this really sort of heroic prose. And then the thought of these martyrs marching off to their deaths, singing psalms somehow left me feeling not as inspired because singing psalms, when I read that, just wasn't, I don't know, it didn't seem very, you know, tough. Just seemed, I don't know, underwhelming going along singing psalms only because I had lost touch with the reality that the Psalter, the Psalms, were the radical songbook of the Reformation. The public singing of Psalms is what characterized the people of God during the Reformation. Psalm singing broke out everywhere. The authorities hated this because the people of God would gather everywhere, including in churches, and start singing the Psalms in their own Language And it was seen as a revolutionary act. They were rebels for doing it. Psalm singing was banned and suppressed, if you can imagine that. They sang the psalms in the streets. They sang them in the fields. They sang them in the churches, even when they were told they weren't meant to. They sang them on the battlefield when they were defending their lives. And they sang them at the stake when they were being burned for their faith. The Psalter was their songbook. It expressed their heart. The persecuted Huguenots, the French Protestants, called Psalm 68 their song of battles. 
You remember Psalm 68, it begins, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. But in times of deliverance, when they were feeling more grateful and maybe a little less martial, they sang Psalm 124, celebrating deliverance. The point of those songs, however, although they're very different in tone, is the same. The point summed up in the words of Proverbs 21, verse 31, is this. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. If we win a victory, it's the Lord's victory. The glory is not to us, but to him. If we are delivered from a cruel fate, that deliverance is to his credit and his alone. If we escape alive, it is only because of him. That's the meaning of this psalm, the meaning of these words. And my hope for us as a church is that as Christians before us made these songs their songs, we might find that they are our songs too. Psalm 24 is for those who are hated. It is for those who are drowning. It is for those who are trapped. And it says to them, Yahweh is on your side. If it had not been for Yahweh, they would have swallowed us up alive, the psalmist says. In this psalm, the enemy of the people of God is characterized as as angry, as overwhelming, as powerful. If you look at the, the descriptions, you see kind of a picture of what we're up against. The, the enemy is described in words that suggest a predator, a predator who swallows us up alive, a predator who we are prey to their teeth. Throughout the Psalms and also in the prophets, you see the enemy of God's people described in this kind of predator language, the ultimate predator being the roaring lion, which should make you think of 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's the idea. Up against a great and angry, hateful predator. The enemy is also described as a flood that threatens to sweep us away, to go over us, to, to, to overwhelm us and consume us. Genesis 7 and 8, God had delivered Noah and his family from such a threat. In Exodus 14, he preserved Israel from drowning in the Red Sea. So this is a way of thinking of the enemy that Israel could have related to. There's a third metaphor, though, the metaphor of the net, the snare. The the enemy is like a, a net or a snare catching us like birds. Interestingly, this idea of the snare is one that's used in the Bible to describe oftentimes the, the danger represented by false gods or by idol worshipers. When Israel goes into the land of Canaan, They're warned repeatedly to avoid these false gods, to avoid this false worship because it will be a snare to you. It'll be a net in which you are entrapped. And of course, death too 
is also described as a snare, as a trap. That's the enemy that we face. And if that's the enemy that the psalm describes, you have to work backwards and think about what it means to be the prey. Who are the prey? Who are the targets? The targets are those who are hated, those who are overwhelmed, those who are trapped. If we can trust the word of Peter, then someone is out to get you. It's not just your imagination because of who you are, because of what you represent, because of what you believe. Someone is, in truth, out to destroy you. The constant daily pressure of knowing there's a malevolent force out there that wants to undermine you, that wants to to overturn your life, wants to destroy what you love. That's hard to live with. That pressure of the world's hatred wears you down. I came across a good description of what it's like to live with that kind of pressure, reading uh, Matt Ruff's novel, Lovecraft Country. In this novel, uh, a black man named Montrose is describing uh, the death of his father. He's saying these words back in the 1950s, the Jim Crow era, but he's looking back to an earlier time. His father was murdered during the Tulsa riots in 1921. He describes the moment where as a a little boy, he sees his father being shot and dying before his eyes and the expression that they share in that moment. Here's how he describes it. This is the, the son talking about the father. He had this look on his face, horror, horror at the universe. I thought he was afraid because he was dying, but that wasn't it at all. It wasn't until I had a son of my own, a son who wouldn't listen, that I understood what he felt. He wasn't afraid for himself. He was afraid for me. He wanted to protect me. He had. But the night wasn't over, and he knew he wasn't going to be there to see me through it. That's the horror, the most awful thing, to have a child the world wants to destroy and know that you're helpless to help him. Nothing worse than that. Nothing worse. If you have children, I think you might be able to relate to that feeling, that uh, fear, that knowledge, that there is a destruction waiting, that there is a hatred that is focused upon us. And living with that kind of hatred is difficult. We're not always conscious of it. Some of us, because of the circumstances that we live in, are more aware than others, of what reality is like. But it's there. We are hated. Also, we are overwhelmed. We are drowning. Commentators talking about the year 2020 have said we have already packed the century's worth of crisis into the year. We've gone from impeachment, which was like 1974 all over again, to pandemic, which was 1918 all over again, to the specter of depression, 1929, to civil unrest, 1968. And the good news is we're only halfway done with the year. There's no telling what we'll be able to pack in in the rest of the year. If you're feeling overwhelmed, 
you have a good excuse because so is everyone else. If you feel like you're drowning, so does everybody else. In the swirl of of chaos, of, of division, of hate, all of us feel like we're drowning. And we also feel like we're trapped. Trapped is how you feel when you recognize how bad things are, but it seems as if it's impossible that they will change. That the cycle that we're experiencing is one we are doomed to repeat, that things will never get better, only different. There is no way out. That we're stuck. That we're doomed. This is the way we feel. So what is that a description of? If you think about it, the the hatred, the drowning, the sense of being trapped, what is that describing? What state of existence does that describe? In a word, weakness. Weakness. That's what it is. The people who are hated are the weak. The people who are overwhelmed and drowning are the weak. The people who are trapped are the weak. Being hated, being overwhelmed, being trapped, that's what weakness looks like. The Apostle Paul understood all these feelings. He had been directed, he'd had these threats targeting him throughout his ministry, throughout his life. He had enjoyed a life of great privilege and distinction, a life spent in in pious study until God turned that life around and set him on a different path that led to hatred, that led to overwhelming enemies, that led to a sense of, of entrapment. They even gave him this thorn in the flesh that God refused to take away. And into that weakness, which the apostle felt keenly, God spoke these words, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. This weakness that Paul experienced, this weakness that we see all around us, this weakness is our reality, and it means that we are doomed. Except for one thing. Except for one thing, the grace of God. The grace of God who has not given us as prey to their teeth, who has not let us be swept away, who has not let us be swallowed up alive. Into our weakness, God speaks deliverance. The prophet Isaiah spoke these words, inspired by the Lord, giving voice to the Lord's sentiments, words that we have sung here in worship from Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The promise of God is not that there will be no fire and there will be no flood, but that when there are, I will be with you 
in your weakness, I will deliver you. Only God can deliver us from evil. If it had not been for the Lord, if it had not been for the Lord, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, that word, that line repeated twice at the beginning of our psalm, it's interesting because it's easy to misunderstand the meaning of those words. Calvin makes a good observation here in his commentary. He says, you, you need to understand what the Hebrew is getting at here. So the intention of this declaration in verses 1 and 2 is not some kind of a smug expression like, God is on our side, better watch out. God is backing our play, don't mess with us. It's not that at all. The point is, if it had been any other Savior, we would have been consumed. If it had been anyone but Yahweh, if it had been any other God that we had trusted in, we would have been consumed. But it wasn't. It was him. And because it was him, we were delivered. This is not a declaration of our rightness, in other words. It is an admission of our dependence. That there would have been no deliverance for us if not for him. If we had turned to any other Savior, we would have been lost, for only he had the power to deliver us. If you look at the beginning of of Psalm 124, you get one of those those liturgical hints that you know from from earlier examples I I love to find in the Psalms. It comes at the end of verse 1. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, And it gives you a little insight into how this psalm would have been sung by the people. Now, this was a a song of ascent. It was one of the the section of psalms that was used by pilgrims when they were making their journey to Jerusalem. And here, a reader or a cantor would have begun the psalm and would have read out, would have cried out that line. You can imagine like his own voice, similar to what we do when we sing our psalms, where the musicians sing the refrain first, and then the people join in. So verse 1, you get the, 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 the line being thrown out there. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, and then he turns to the people and says, let Israel now say, like, 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 say it back to me, Israel. This is your song. And then the response in verse 2, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. So the people join in. The, the one voice that calls out to them is answered by many voices. They make the song their own, in other words. It's, it becomes their song. They're encouraged to make it theirs. Let Israel now say. In the 1560s, the Reformation in France had, had kind of gone in a bad direction and, and the powers that be decided it was time to suppress it by military force. And so armies gathered up to start uh, persecution. And in the city of Orléans, people were panicking as a result of seeing these great forces coming to bear to exterminate them for their faith. But then one of the Protestant princes of the realm, the Prince of Condé, arrived at the city in order to make it like his base of operations. He delivered the city and the people in thanksgiving because they thought they were going to be swallowed up. And now suddenly a deliverer had come. They sang Psalm 124, but with one modification. 
in verse 1, where the psalm reads, let Israel now say, the people of Orléans changed that line, and what they sang in the streets was, let Orléans now say. They made the song their own. They saw themselves in the deliverance that Israel had been called upon to sing about. They're not alone in that. Incredibly, this kind of blows my mind. But in 1945, in the month of May, in the Second World War, the European theater came to a close, and the Nazi regime was uh, defeated in the, the lower house of the British Parliament, the House of Commons. The uh, parliamentarians, the, the members of Parliament, broke into song. And what they sang was, Psalm 124 from the metrical Psalter, which in the metrical Psalter, the first line is, now Israel may say, and that truly. Supposedly, Winston Churchill was very moved by this song. I wanted to be moved by it as well. So I went and looked up the metrical Psalter and listened to some versions of that, that and uh, tastes change. I found myself not especially moved by uh, that rendition, but, but the story is incredible to me. But think about this. Their song of victory at the moment of triumph was not a very bombastic song. It was a song of deliverance. No boasts, a, a song of thanksgiving. I think when you remember how certain defeat seemed, and these men remembered what it had been like when it seemed inevitable, that their defeat would come, when it seemed as if they alone stood against the powers of darkness. They knew what it was like to to feel as if you were going to be swallowed up at any moment. When you remember how certain defeat seemed, you don't exult in victory. Rather, in victory, you rejoice in your deliverance. Deliverance now that gives us hope and deliverance to come. Psalm 124 probably was inspired by some particular deliverance in the life of David. We don't know the the, the circumstances that led him to pen these words. There were many deliverances in the life of David that could fit the bill. The psalm came to be seen as a celebration of deliverance from exile and came to be used as a psalm for pilgrims, a psalm of ascent, as I mentioned. And as you've seen, Throughout the course of the sermon, it's a song that has been used by many different groups of people to celebrate little deliverances, little circumstances in history where they felt overwhelmed, but God delivered them. These historical deliverances, public and private in the life of God's people, uh, I've listed a few, but there are many more. But all of these little deliverances surely point to the ultimate deliverance, to the great deliverance from sin and death that comes to us through Christ. And when you recognize that, you realize something. The fact that our hope for deliverance is in Jesus, that we recognize that the world is not going to be fixed until Jesus comes again, that is not a reason for us to adopt some stoic, otherworldly idea of deliverance in the next life, which leads us to indifference in this life. We should never be people who say there is no hope in the here and now, only in the world to come. Because to say those words ignores the whole history of the people of God. When did God ever say there was no hope in this life, only in the world to come? 
God gives us hope in this life so that we might trust in the hope to come. To see it otherwise is to deny the gifts that God has given us. The reality captures that already not yet aspect of God's promises. We do not yet see the world remade. We do not yet see Christ fully upon his throne, ruling and reigning as he will. We do not yet see every knee bow before him and every tongue confessing his lordship. And yet, constantly, he brings light out of darkness. He gives us hope where it seems that there should be no hope. He does good when we intended evil. He testifies to his intentions. He shows us what the not yet will look like by giving us a taste in the here and now. The people who sang Psalm 124 throughout the history of the church were not apathetic and passive. They were in the fight and they knew that victory could only come through Christ. As verse 8 says, our trust is in the creator, not in human strength. We already saw in Psalm 20, our trust is not in horses or chariots. Our trust is in the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Our trust is in the covenant God of Israel. Revelation 4.11, when the elders take the crowns off their heads and they cast them at the foot of the throne, they sing a song of worthiness to the one who sits on the throne. They say he is worthy of worship because he has made all things. He is our creator and he is our deliverer. And what better declaration of that fact could you want than the words of verse 7 here in Psalm 124? The snare is broken and we have escaped. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Proverbs 14, 27, we read, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. As a congregation and as a community, we've borne the weight of death. Mourning layered on top of mourning. Anger, feeling overwhelmed and trapped. We've felt it. We've mourned with those who are feeling it. But Jesus knows how to break nets. Jesus knows how to tear apart snares. And he does it in fascinating ways you might not expect, as those fishermen in the Sea of Galilee discovered. Sometimes Jesus threatens to break nets by filling them beyond their capacity to hold, which is how he broke death itself. Hated, overwhelmed, trapped, we feel it, yes. But as the psalmist says, let Israel now say, let Israel now say, we would have been swallowed up, but we were not. We would have been drowned, but we were not. We would have been snared, but we were not. Because Jesus Christ, the breaker of nets, has broken the snare and we have escaped. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship 
by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.